If you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, we are continuing. We have this week and next, and then we're finishing this. So you thought the Christian life was a marathon. How about the study of Ephesians, two and a half years? That's a marathon, right? But we are finishing it up, I promise, this week and next, and then moving into some ser- sermons on the season, Advent and Christmas. And we want to look, I'm going to read verses 10 to 20, and then we're focusing on verses 14 to 17, which is the armor of God particularly. I called it being dressed for battle. So let's turn our hearts and our attention. Let's worship God. This is not just a time of teaching. This is a time of worship where we hear the word of God. The word of God is proclaimed and we adore Christ together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." Let's go to the Lord now, having read his word and asked for the spirit of God to be our teacher and to bless his word this morning. Father, we come before you and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to show us the glory of Jesus, to be our teacher, to take your word and may your word not be bound and to apply it to our lives as you see fit, as you, according to your sovereignty, apply it to our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me again, just kind of by way of introduction, remind us of a couple things as we've been going through this text. It was C.S. Lewis, this quote that I said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, to say that's just silly, myths, child stuff. We don't believe in any of that. That's one error. The other is to go, we have an excessive unhealthy interest in them. Lewis writes that the devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail what they call a materialist or magician with the same delight. What is the spiritual battle? When you become a Christian, when you become a believer and you've surrendered, when God has given you the gift of faith and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Paul says to the Colossians that a transfer of kingdoms goes on. He says, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into another kingdom, the kingdom of the son he loves. And so he's depicting there is a spiritual battle that, as a believer, you're thrust into the middle middle of. Now, what is the nature of that? One commentator put it this way. He writes, Paul clearly supposes that the forces of evil that put Jesus on the cross have been seriously upset by the victory of the resurrection. They are now positively panic-stricken at the thought that the message of this Jesus is everywhere challenging their power and authority 
and that communities loyal to Jesus as Lord and King are springing up, bringing together peoples and communities in a new unity, a new humanity that shows evidence of the Creator's sovereign power and hence of their own imminent destruction. They are therefore doing their best to oppose this gospel, to distract or depress the young Christians, to blow them off course by false teaching or temptations to things like anger or immorality. So an application question is how aware are you? How aware are we as a church? How are we when we go to prayer? How are we when we come to worship each Sunday? How are we in day-to-day life? How aware are we of the spiritual battle, the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in? That is a reality. Yes, we don't have an excessive interest in it, but it's still a reality. I'll even share with you these last couple of weeks. Evie mentioned to me at home as she was praying and stuff like that, she says, Jeff, you must have been speaking these past few weeks on marriage and spiritual warfare. Our communication has been a little off. Even She was even noticing that even teaching on the topic of spiritual warfare is spiritual warfare itself. When you get more serious about following Jesus, about really pursuing him, about passionately drawing near to him, you wake enemies up. We don't want to be afraid of them, but are you aware? Or can we liken it, are you driving a car and you're just kind of in the fog? You're just living in the fog, or are you aware of the spiritual reality? Are you aware of the spiritual battle we find ourselves in? The main admonition Paul gives us in this text is to stand firm. Several times he's saying to withstand, to stand firm, to be strong in the the Lord and in the strength of his might. Second, we need to see as we dress for battle that basically what we're doing when we're putting on the armor is we are putting on Christ. We learned last week that our very name, our very identity, that when, when Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that word wrestle is our identity, is our name. We are, the church is the new Israel. We are the fulfillment of all of those promises to Israel. And when Jacob in Genesis 32 wrestled with a man, and later he said he saw God face to face, that man had to be an angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Jesus. And he asked, and God gave him a new name. No longer will your name be Jacob, deceiver, fraud, heel grabber, but your name will be Israel. Wrestle with God and prevail. Before we even dress in the armor of God, do you prepare to dress for battle by remembering every day your identity, who you are in Christ, that in Christ you have wrestled with God, and because Christ took your battle upon himself on the cross, you've prevailed in and through him. And so to put on the armor of God is not like putting checks in the box and going, okay, I did this, I did this. It's Paul's way of another way of saying putting on Jesus Christ. It's another way for Paul to say, like he said to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Putting on the armor is being strong in the grace that God gives you in Jesus Christ. He said earlier in the letter to the Ephesians, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and holiness. To the church at Rome, he said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So an awareness of the spiritual battle, the spiritual warfare you're in, and dressed for battle means putting on the armor of God, which means putting on Christ. And what does it mean? How do we go about putting on Christ? And this particular passage shows us, and this is the scary part of the sermon, there are six different pieces of armor. You're going to go, oh, no, a six-point sermon. We're here till Thanksgiving. Turkey's in the oven. But I have good news for you. I have six pieces of armor I'm going to give you under four headings. Yes, we are covering all six pieces of armor, though. But we're giving it to you under four basic headings. Paul lists six different pieces of armor, all aspects and parts of what it means to put on Christ. These are all parts of the character and personality of Jesus Christ. And what are those four things? To be confident in truth, to be committed to justice, to be covered by faith, and to contend with the sword. Five of those things are what you might call defensive. There are ways to be protected against the arrows and the darts of the evil one. And the other one is the weapon we actually wield in doing that. You might say there's five defensive weapons and one offensive weapon. But all of these are involved in putting on aspects of the character of Christ. First of all, the first piece of armor, verse 14 says, the text tells us, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Do you have a confidence in the truth of the gospel? And I say the truth of the gospel because later on, the sword of the spirit is the entirety of the word of God. Here, Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel. And our confidence is in the truth because the message is true. If it is not true, it's, it's meaningless. It has no value for us. One writer put it this way. He says, it isn't true because it works. It works because it's true. And if you think about it, historical scholars tell us, and of course Paul's taken this, this is imagery, this is all he's taken, images from the Roman soldier. And in Roman times, the Roman soldiers would wear leather belts to support and protect their lower abdomen and it would gather their tunic together and hold their sword. And when Paul says, having the, being fast, the idea of fastening indicates a preparation for vigorous activity. Friends, I don't care what your age is, what your, you are in the battle. If your primary role right now is the front lines of prayer, that is still spiritual battle. Are you praying with the belt of truth? See, the imagery comes out of Isaiah 11.5, where, where it says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the truth that is fastened on the Christian shoulder, soldier as a belt is the truth of the gospel. And there's actually an enormous claim being made here in this claim of being fastened by the belt of truth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, to the scribes, and he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Pharisees, they answered him, verse 33. He says, hang on, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Now think about the claim that is being made here in this particular piece of armor. The 
claim as to what Jesus and Jesus alone, because later in, in John's gospel, he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. So he's making a claim here as to what he and only he can do for us. See, the first thing he says, is he says what? The truth will set you free. I can set you free. And they come back and they say, time out, Jesus. We're not buying into this. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that you will set us free? Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, now, when they ask that question, they're really saying two things. First, when they say we've never been slaves to anyone, we say, huh? Interesting, because they've been slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves in Babylon. Their whole history is a history of slavery. So what kind of slavery are they talking about? And Tim Keller makes the point that they must not be talking so much about politics, economics, that sort of thing, but they're talking about a spiritual freedom, an inner freedom. They're talking about the kind of freedom that Mel Gibson talked about in Braveheart. Remember the movie Braveheart, where Mel Gibson yelled out, they can take away our land, they can take away our families, they can take away our lives, but they can't, I wish I could do it in a Scottish accent, but they can't take away our freedom. And of course, what is he talking about? Dr. Keller says, if they can take away all that, doesn't that mean that your freedom is gone? And he says, no, because you know immediately when he says that, what he's talking about. And what they're talking about here is this spiritual sense of an inner liberation, an inner freedom. And look at what they're saying. They're saying, Jesus, we're Abraham's children. We've never been enslaved. We have that spiritual freedom. We're the followers of the biblical religion. If you want to talk about slaves, look at those dirty pagans over there. They're the ones that enslaved them. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Don't talk about us. We're good people. We're moral people. We're not enslaved to anybody. How in the world can you talk about us being spiritual slaves? And Jesus is leveling the spiritual leveling the playing field when he says the truth, and he alone is the truth, will set you free. What, is he, what he's saying is that naturally all of us, whether it's through religion, whether it's through anything else, we are all enslaved to sin, need to be set free, and Jesus Christ is the only one who can set us free. That's the truth of the gospel. And are you wearing the belt of truth, the belt of that freedom, Every day, is it fastened around your waist? Do you have confidence in the truth of the gospel? Secondly, look with me at the rest of it. Verse 14 and verse 15. He says, and having put on, I'm going to take the next two pieces together. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Are you committed to justice? Historians remind us for the Roman soldier, the breastplate was a piece of armor that covered the chest to protect it against blows and arrows. And what we learn from this text is we need to be armed, wearing as our breastplate the very righteousness of God, the very righteousness of Christ as protection against the slanders and accusations of our spiritual enemies. Do you recognize that the proper name of Satan means accuser. That means one of his chief, here's one of the chief arrows and flaming darts he will always be firing at you. 
You're not good enough. You don't measure up. You can't love that person. You don't have what it takes. You can't do that ministry. You're not good enough. Do you know what kind of life you've led? Do you know what kind of accusation, charge, slander? Those are some of the chief weapons of the proper name of Satan, which is accuser. Now look at this. What is our breastplate? Our breastplate is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this has at least two reference points. The first one is what can be called the forensic or the judicial. That is our right standing before God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. See, we stand firm in who we are in Christ. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us becomes the basis for our standing firm in the spiritual struggle. See, if you have that breastplate of the imputed righteousness of Christ and an arrow says, you're not good enough, it bounces off the breastplate saying, Christ's righteousness is, you're not approvable, Christ's righteousness is. But now here's the second point, the second reference point. Does our standing in Christ impact how we live? You better believe it impacts how we live. So there is a second reference to the ethical that flows out of the first. Remember, in putting on all the armor, we are putting on Christ. And Paul said, you are putting on the new self. That means you're putting on the personality, the attitudes, the behaviors, the language, the lifestyle, the characteristics of Jesus Christ. You're being created in true, after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And when Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians, he wrote, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This obviously has an ethical application. We need to recognize that our identity, the identity and security of our standing before God, is what is to lead us to living as the new humanity. It leads to gospel transformation. This leads us to the next piece of art. He says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The language comes from Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Peter O'Brien is a commentator on the book of Ephesians, and he puts it this way. He says, in its original context, the picture is painted of a lone messenger whose beautiful feet are drumming across the mountaintops with all the swiftness of a gazelle bringing good news to Jerusalem. As he comes with an earshot of the city, he shouts, peace, good tidings, salvation, your God reigns. The messenger whose beautiful feet glide over the mountaintops is ready to announce good tidings. Zion. And who is that messenger and what are the good tidings? The messenger is Jesus Christ and the good news is the good news of the kingdom of God and it's the good news of the judgment or justice of God. Now let me explain what I mean by that. In Psalm 96, the psalmist proclaimed, he said, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So then again, proclaim peace. The peace is in the kingship of the, of the Lord. Yes, the world is established and shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. One writer put it this way. He says, the good, this is good news for the one true God is the one true judge who is committed to and intends to put the whole world to rights. And that is justice. Justice is God putting everything that is wrong to right. He is making everything what it ought to be, what it was created to be. Notice how the creation responds to the fact that it's being published, it's being announced, it's being proclaimed, that the Lord reigns. I mean, do you listen to the language? The heavens are glad, the earth is rejoicing, the field is basically throwing a party, the seas are... Could it be a charismatic creation? Do we shudder to think maybe we shouldn't be as quiet as we are? The creation is going nuts because of the justice of God. Because justice is more than just punishment direct. That's one aspect of it. But the justice or judgment of God is God's commitment to shalom. The fact that he is going to put everything to rights. And that has a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Earlier in Paul's letter, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul said that this messenger who publishes peace is Jesus Christ. For Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul wrote, For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the one Father. That peace, that shalom, that justice is both vertical between God and man and horizontal, reconciling peoples who are formerly hostile to one another. And Jesus is the ultimate messenger who comes bringing the gospel of the kingdom. But now I want you to think about this. Jesus is ascended into heaven and leaves as whom to be the messenger to publish peace to all those who are in Christ. So Paul writes, part of your armor is for you to be wearing shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from this gospel of shalom. Are you committed to shalom through the gospel, and are you always ready to take the gospel into enemy territory? As Jesus is the ultimate messenger, he has called and equipped his church together, corporately, to be the messenger Taking the good news of the kingdom into enemy territory. How in the world are we going to do that? You need the next piece of the armor. You need to be covered by faith. Again, I want to take the next two pieces of armor together. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And I want you to notice something because very interesting in the language here of this particular text. Up to this point, 
Every piece of armor we're wearing now. And we're kind of in this defensive posture. But here, Paul calls us to, to have a real active participation. Take up the shield of faith. And take up the helmet of salvation. We are not to be passive in the Christian life. Elsewhere, Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, in the historical context, we are covered by faith because the shield is the large shield carried by Roman soldiers which covered the whole person. I want you to think about the picture that's being painted. The soldier of Christ is already wearing a breastplate, the breastplate of your standing in the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that good enough? In one sense, yes. In another sense, no. Because on top of that breastplate of righteousness, you need to take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation that extinguishes all these darts and arrows. And we learn in the text that Paul here is picturing faith itself as the shield. Peter O'Brien again writes, laying hold of God's resources, especially his power in the midst of the evil one's attacks, to take the shield of faith is to appropriate the promises of God on our behalf, confident that he will protect us in the midst of battle. I want to ask you a question. What do all the promises of God in the Bible have to do with? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, all the promises of God, every one of them have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And every one of them have to do with what God has accomplished for us in Christ for our salvation. We take up the help, just like you take up the shield, which is faith, to appropriate the power of God. You take up the helmet, which is salvation, which is what God has accomplished for us in Christ. And think about it, just in this letter, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, some of what is involved in that salvation. In chapter 2, Paul was using salvation language when he said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And what are the things he's talking about? He's saying... That God, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, now you're alive. Not only that, not only are you alive, you were raised up with him in Christ. By the way, not good enough. Not only are you alive, not only are you raised up, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. <laughs> All of that is included in taking up the helmet of salvation. We say the words, greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. Do we wear that as our helmet? Do we believe it? And do we live with that kind of power? Are we covered with that kind of faith? See, I know that salvation has a future aspect to it, but are we forgetting its present realization because of the resurrection and ascension of Christ? Does Jesus Christ rule and reign presently or not? If he presently rules and reigns, then there's a present experience to salvation. There's a realized sense to what theologians call eschatology. Your life, Paul wrote to the Colossians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you realize that's part of salvation? What can life, can life really touch you? Your life is hidden. How about that for an ultimate security, that your life is hidden with Christ in God? Confident in truth, committed to shalom, committed to God's mission of putting the world to rights, covered by faith, really functionally believing 
in the helmet of salvation. And lastly, appropriating all of these by contending with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, the only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And see, we grow spiritually as we read, meditate, memorize, study, be saturated in the Word of God. How do you think you appropriate by faith these promises? It's prayer and the Word. We're going to talk about prayer next week. It's saturating yourself in the promises of God and appropriating those promises through prayer. Calling down the ruling, reigning power of King Jesus into your life through prayer. <laughs> Contending with the sword of the Spirit. Think about what the writer to the Hebrews said, by the way, about the Word of God. You want to know how sharp this sword is? So the Word of God is what? Living and active. Is it living in your life or is it just dead information that comes in that makes you smarter than everybody else? It's living and active, which means it should be doing something in you right now. Maybe it's making you mad. Maybe it's comforting you. But any of those would be a sign of it's living and active in your life. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Piercing. Wounding. Comforting. What did the psalmist write? Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and in whose law meditates day and night. Friends, I'm not being self-deprecating when I say this, but if the only intake you're getting of the word is the half hour a week you listen to me, I'm going to be very blunt, you're not getting enough. I'm not saying I'm all that bad. But I'm going, that's not near enough. And five ten-minute devotions, they're better than zero-minute devotions. But five and ten-minute devotions aren't enough. That's not meditating on the Word of God day and night. That's not soaking in it. That's not immersing yourself in it. That's not being saturated in it. These are the only weapons you have putting on Christ. There's no other alternatives. We don't fight with the weapons that the world fights with. The weapons God has given us have power to demolish strongholds. This is how we overcome evil with good. There's no other alternative. Put on Christ. See, by putting on the armor, it's not just a list. You're putting on the person of Christ. You are actually participating in the divine nature. You're putting on his truth. You're putting on his justice. You're putting on his righteousness, you're putting on his salvation, you're putting on his faith, and you're putting on his word. Every aspect of Christ, you are wearing it. And in that way, you are being strong in the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would learn functionally to, to grow in putting on Christ. That we would look at each day as an adventure of putting on Christ, being clothed in Christ. Thank you for the grace that what grace really means and what grace really looks like is participating in the divine nature, being Christ ones, being the presence of Christ on the earth. Teach us what it means to really be in Christ and have our life hid with Christ in God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.